Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Joseph Rios on the show. Joseph is a newly minted poet laureate of Fresno. He's also the author of the acclaimed poetry collection Shadowboxing, Poems, and Impersonations, which won the 2018 American Book Award. This was a fun, all-over-the-place style conversation with deep insights about the connection between poetry and Fresno, but also reminiscences about bars, living in the Bay Area, and underrated 90s hip-hop. Please enjoy this wonderful back and forth, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. So, Joe, where do you like to eat in Fresno? I like to eat most most recently. I'm a big sandwich guy, a big deli person. So, anytime I am in a town, one of the most common Google searches for me is deli near me. So, <laughs> you know, there's Italian delis, Jewish delis, doesn't matter. But here in Fresno, it's it's big on an Italian deli. So, it would be. Sam's or Ani's, but I really, really like Moto now. Mm. It's, I think they're they've really stepped up and either easily in the top three might be the top of the top three now of those three. Yeah, and it's tough when you're in Tower and you're like trying to decide whether you want to. It's a Piemonte's day or a Moto day. How do you make that call? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. Recently, it's it's if if Moto's open, I'm I'm going there. Like, cause I, I've really I don't know if it's just you know honeymoon phase, but man, I really love their sandwiches there, and and I haven't and and they have I haven't quite got a, a handle on their hours yet, but so I'm always checking and saying, oh, they're not open, or oh, they're open, oh, they're not open, you know. And so, but no, I love that place. I think they do everything everything right. They do everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I've heard some people talk about the price of the sandwiches because they price them what I would say, which is economically ethical, (laughs) which is my framing for it, which is, you know, they're paying for their employees to have a livelihood and for the cost of the ingredients. Yeah. And so I don't mind paying $16 for a sandwich. I get why some people, you know, that might be a turnoff, but you know, if you're paying deli delicious, whatever, $9 or whatever, and there's, and for seven more dollars, you can pay a place that, you know, takes care of their employees. I would, I would venture to say that it's an ethical decision in some capacity. Uh, what totally, is your, yeah. what, what is your order at Moto? Uh, you can answer that. And then your order at Moto. Uh, the last time I was there, I had, what was it called? It was, it had a strange name. It was like, it was, it was with Mr. T or something like that, but it was something like that. But uh, yeah, I haven't quite memorized the names. They have really, really cool names of the sandwiches, but I really like their salads there. I've had their like charcuterie board there, but the, the the turkey sandwich the like is really good anything honestly and it, it's 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 everything it's not even what what goes in the meat there it's it's the bread the, the the you know the I'm sure they make their sauces and extras and stuff there and everything's just super duper fresh you know mm-hmm. and yeah so totally worth sixteen bucks without without a doubt you know yeah I, I know you can you can get a, a cheaper sandwich somewhere but like I say man I, there's lots of places. It, it literally any city that I go to, I'm like, where's, where's your best deli, you know? And, and for a long time for me, it's been Sam's, um, but, and I, I love, still love Sam's, but man, Moto really is doing something really, really great. And I'm really excited and hopefully they stay open for a really long time. Yeah. And I do think you're right about going to delis and cities. I, I lived in Stockton for one year 
kind mm-hmm. of a random year in Stockton. And there was this deli that I would go to kind of in downtown Stockton where, you know, things were wild and fun. And the deli was in like an old Victorian house that they just kind of mm-hmm. blew out the walls and the bottom floor. And, you know, it was the guy must have been 95 slicing the turkey and just been doing the same thing. And, you know, I think the deli thing is a craft thing too, right? Like it's like, it's a, it's a craft and it's, it still hasn't given away to that kind of manufacturing mentality. Like there's still some love in that sandwich, you know, and that repetition. I love that. And that's, that's the experience that I look for when I want to go out, you know, not something that's, you know, commercialized or whatever. I heard from someone that you really like pho. I do like, I do like, where um, do you get fun Fresno? I usually go to any one of the places on McKinley and first, which is, you know, in the poem too. on McKinley and first, there's like five pho restaurants on one corner. Um, two, I think two of them are sit down restaurants. The other two are mostly to go, but it's just, that's usually where I'll start. People will probably not agree with me but there's there's a couple of places in clovis that are pretty good there's one by where my mom lives in the barnyard which is right off of clovis avenue just before you get to barstow there's one that's been there for as long as i can remember maybe 10 15 years or more that at least my family that lives on that side of town that's where we go to all the time and but yeah it's fresno has the unique unique pleasure of of enjoying some of the best because i mean i've having lived in the bay and having lived in l.a in the Bay, I will say, you know, controversial take, but that they like, I would go toe to toe Fresno in the Bay with pho. LA doesn't really have great pho, I'll say. It, you know, I, I, I've had a few that were pretty, pretty okay, but I don't know. It just, it's not like Fresno. There's something special. And, and in the Bay, too, you know, about, about the flavor of the pho. And, uh, and I'm, I'm only an expert as much as I've eaten as a lot of it, but I'm not, I'm not some, uh, definitely not. I didn't grow up with, you know, Vietnamese grandmother or, or, you know, or anything like that, that could really show me how it's done. But in my experience, Fresno, Fresno's right up there with anyone, I think. Yeah. Tripe or no tripe? I haven't done it with tripe. You know, weirdly enough, I had this great experience recently at a Club One Casino, the new Club One. And I went and they give you, if, even if you ordered like chicken pho, they give you the bone with the marrow in. Mm. And, you, and it like, you just paste it out like butter into your, into your bowl and it melts literally like butter. It's so, so tender. It just melts in the hot water. And that was I was like, whoa, this is, you know, an old club one in downtown. That's where we used to go late at night. And there or the 500 club in, in Clovis, the also a casino, you could get pho at, at like two in the morning. And and it was really good pho too. And, but the new club one, I just went recently and, and they, they didn't do that before, but they have the bone, bone marrow. And I'm, I'm definitely going to try to make it back there. Sounds wonderful. I love bone marrow and I love connecting those two kind of worlds. They've only had bone marrow as kind of a, a bougie app in some places, but connecting yeah. that to fuzz sounds wonderful. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I want to start kind of in an area of connection that you and I have. <clears throat> I lived in San Francisco from 2007 to 2011. Yeah. At a similar time, I think you were in Berkeley. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. I was there from 2010 till I believe like 15. 
Okay. Yeah. And I had some interesting experiences with the Occupy movement as well at San Francisco State, where I went to school. Oh, cool. uh, and kind of one of my most vivid memories is when a lot of the tuition hikes were going on. Yeah. And a group of, I, I, I think they were kind of tangentially connected to the Occupy movement, but they were just kind of like the neighborhood resident anarchist club, took over the business building during finals week and chained all the doors and had some pulley systems to you know deliver food through the rooftop and they were in there for like 6 days and being at a SF state kid, at SF state yeah, yeah yeah and being a valley kid I had never seen something like that that was such a yeah. strange concept to me that you know these these they would just take over this university's building for mm -hmm. almost a week and so that was my kind of first experience of direct action, just like right in front of my face. And just, I'd have to walk by that building to work every day. And I would just see the, you know, the bandanas over the windows and the signs that, you know, stop the tuition hikes. Um, it was, it was a really interesting time and it was kind of such a contrast from where I'd come from in the Valley to this new place. So what, what was your experience like going from the Valley to the Bay area? Yeah, I was I was really terrified, you know. I apologize for this dog. Would would it be better if I moved somewhere else or? No, no. I think okay. that it's uh, ambient, you know. Okay. Yeah. I I went yeah, I went to Berkeley. I was a, a transfer student from Fresno City College. I was my first. I was there as a, a spring admin, so I came in in January 2010. And, and right around then is when things started, started happening. For me, the, the Occupy movement was kind of coinciding with a lot of the activism against SB 1070 out in Arizona and banning of, of books by, you know, Chicano, Chicano authors and, you know, just Latinx authors in general. And also a group of, of students desire at Berkeley anyway to, to create, to make Berkeley a sanctuary campus. So all that stuff was happening at the same time. And then Occupy was kind of like the national sort of, you know, overarching sort of issue. But for the students that were there, I remember right away getting involved and 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 sort of trying to organize around the sanctuary campus issue and also sort of to be in solidarity with those in Arizona who were sort of up against this 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 pressure by their governments and school districts to remove and, and in Tucson in particular they actually did come up with a list of books to ban that were by Chicanx Latinx authors and pulled them from the classroom physically pulled them from the classrooms and and also got rid of a lot of they had Mexican American studies in the high schools and in the middle schools and a lot of those classes were dissolved and so that, that's what got me started and then Occupy came shortly after I believe if, if my memory serves and 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 yeah i mean to start i was those first few weeks i remember being so afraid i remember feeling like this big campus i remember carrying around it's kind of embarrassing now but i remember carrying around my admission letter because i had the assumption that as soon as i got on campus somebody was some security guard or something was going to stop me and say like oh what are you doing here and i'd have to pull out my admissions letter that I printed from my email to say, no, 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 I'm, I, I'm a student. I'm a student. And no one ever said that to me or told me that that was going to happen. But I just had this ingrained fear that like that, that this, that I was somehow going to be stopped and questioned about why I was there. And so the few, first few days uh, I would go to class and then go to my classroom. And then if I had an, a couple hours gap, 
I would go hide in the bathroom, you know, and I would go sit in there, you know, just find a, a big stall and just wait for it because it was just so overwhelming to be at this place. And, you know, this giant school, a bunch of people, you know, this sort of ultimate, like to the, the nth degree of, of feeling imposter and, and really finding the Rasa, it's called the Rasa Center at the time, it's called the Raices Center now, but the Rasa Center, they were the ones who had sent me a letter early on and before I went to campus and said that, oh, you know, we welcome you, blah, 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 we're going to have this thing. And so I found their, the office and that's when I started meeting people. And a lot of those people were showing up to these, you know, they were sort of not, they were like, they were camping out in front of the, the chancellor's office. And that's what got me, gave me something to do outside of class. And I was like, oh, I know. And then I got people say, oh no, come, come, you know, if you have extra blankets, bring them because people are staying overnight. And, and so I, I it really became a, a sort of a, my foundation my social foundation quickly became activism at, at Berkeley, you know, cause everyone that I met right away and would later live with, you know, were very involved in that. And I became very involved in the Rasa Center and very involved in just a lot of different things that were going on on campus. And uh, I mean, you know, one of, before I got there, there was a, they had occupied Wheeler Hall for I think seven or eight days. This was the semester or two before I got there. And, and, and one of the, one of the people in the occupiers was, uh, you know, was my, my, would become my roommate for like the next, you know, two or three years, even after we graduated and, and he just finished, he's the, right now he's the, the president of Oakland teachers union and, uh, and he, they just finished their, you know, their strike as of, I think last night, I think, or yesterday. And it's cool to see you know, how that, how that stretch of time, you know, you go from, from chaining yourself in a building to, you know, leading a, a union, you know, for in, in the city of Oakland. And, and a lot of those people that I, that I met during that time, they, you know, they're, they're doctors now and they're lawyers or they're immigration lawyers or they're, you know, heads of, heads of nonprofits and whatnot. And it's just, it's, it's really, it was a really cool time, really exciting time, really frightful time, especially when, the, you know, police would show up and, you know, would shoot tear gas and, and tase people and pepper spray people and drag people out. And I mean, it was, it was a really frightening time, and especially being from the Valley. It was like, I was so far from the sort of, I don't know, just the small town mentality or world that I had been. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, my mind was completely blown open and, and was like, like sucking up all this new material that was, every day was changing my, my, every, every day was blowing my mind. Every day was blowing my mind. You know, I'd go, I, even if I would skip class to go to some kind of demonstration, you know, it was blowing my mind. I went, went to class, it was blowing my mind. And it was just this, this period of about three years where everything, everything was, was changing so, so fast, you know, in my brain. And yeah, I have a, you know, I know, I know, I knew like that when it, when it was kind of over that it wasn't going to happen again, you know what I mean? That that level of just newness and, and just youth and, and like, and just amount of change of mind being changed and growing was so super unique. And, and, and then my, my response as like, again, as a young, younger person to be like, 
so on fire and be like, I'm willing to show up and get pepper sprayed or thrown around by a cop because, you know, that that only happens when you're like 20 some, you know, or at least it's more likely to happen when you're like 20 some and these ideas are brand new. Like you're, you're willing to throw your, throw your body in there, you know, and you're not afraid and it's less, it becomes less and less likely as you get older, I think. But even though I'm not any less angry, but, but I just, the, the urge to, to perform my activism that way is, is just changed, you know? And I think that makes sense as we get older and think about things. And I guess my next question, and just having read your poetry, it seems like political engagement is maybe underlies part of the purpose of your poetry, but also I think the, the language you use too. So can you, can you elaborate on how you think that kind of political experience shaped you as a poet? Yeah. I mean, you know, being in, being in, in Cal, you know, being in Berkeley, being in any university away from home and home, I mean, here in the Valley, you know, it, it's all tied to that sense of, of, of feeling other or, you know, feeling like an imposter, you know, especially in those classrooms where Berkeley has these beautiful old hundred plus year old buildings, high ceilings and all the chairs. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's like a Harry Potter movie sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, and, and these like hallowed halls of this and that, and, and it's very intimidating. And for someone from the Valley, you know, and having the, had the experiences I've had, I was always kind of pushing up against that. And, and at first it was, when I first started, thank God I was at City College first, because I, I read a lot of the sort of foundational canonical literature there. And I felt armed enough when I went to Cal that that I wasn't totally lost, you know. I, I I really feel for the people who went right out of high school to these big universities because, man, I don't think I, I would. I definitely would not have been able to make it. And but trying to see myself in the literature, and it's, it it all comes back to those those things, right? Like what happened in Arizona, my sense of imposter syndrome. It's you know, as a young young brown kid studying in these sort of you know upper division classes of, of literature, constantly trying to look for myself in the books, you know, constantly trying to find a look, look for my experience or some kind of not so much validation, but just just the sense that that I'm somewhere in the literature, you know, and if you're reading, you know, you know, something from 16th century England, or you're reading something else from, you know, this this translation of some French author or whatever, and or something from some British colonial account of the conquest of such and such indigenous people, whatever. It's like, well, this is what you're getting taught over and over and over again. And, and so in my own writing, it was like, well, how can I, and a lot of, even a lot of the best writers that I, that I look up to, like I've been having this conversation a lot about Jose Montoya, who we just, opened an ex- exhibition at Arte Americas for this past Friday. He's he's of the Chicano ilk where it's like he taught me and others and through his writing that you can learn all the all the Western canon that you need to learn, but you're going to do something else. So you can you can you can read everything that they teach you that you're supposed to know. And then he's like, but you're also going to flip it on them. You're still going to have that humor, you're still going to talk about your experience, 
you're basically going to take all their tools and, 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 and make your own way. And people like that, people like Jose in particular were really important. And when I found them and, and, and found their books really changed my mind in that way. And, and so when I, when I was writing and Javier Huerta, I can't, I can't discount Javier Huerta. Javier was a grad student in English department, a PhD student in English at Berkeley at the time. And we became friends pretty fast. And his writing is, is, is of that, of that style where he's as learned as you get, you know, as a, as an English, you know, person, he's read everything that, that, that you're, they tell you to read and more, you know, and he's also read every Chicano that you could think of. And, and he's listens to Biggie and, you know, and, and Tupac and all these things. And, and we listen to the same, grew up listening to the same music and watching the same TV shows and liking the same comic books and all this other stuff. So if anyone was my audience, my perfect audience and Javier was when I was writing that, cause it was like, he understood all the stuff that was going on in Berkeley. He understood He's read all those professors, those like, you know, big time English professors. He's taken all their classes, read all their books. So there was all these little jokes, little inside jokes that I sent that I was writing to Javier as a way of sort of subverting what that sort of power structure I felt that was on top of me, you know? And, and yeah, it was, it was like a middle finger, you know, it was like a middle finger to the academic world, but also wanting so it's just, it's a mix of f u but also i want to be embraced by this culture of literature you know i, I want to be i want to be and it, it's a weird feeling it's this like weird sense of abandonment and also wanting affection from the one who abandoned you you know what i mean like it's a it's a weird psychological sort of complex thing you know yeah Let's talk about academia for a little bit. As you well know, a lot of our great living poets also work in academia. It's become yeah. kind of a place for poets to support themselves. Totally. Does that hinder their poetry? I, I've never, I've never taught like for any length of time in in university. Those that my a lot of my friends do and have. The only thing I could say is I know that's for some. And this is just secondhand knowledge. I don't, I've never experienced this myself, but some of them have, have said that they, you know, want more time. Sometimes they teach their teaching load is, is really high. And so their, their writing sometimes isn't as, they're not as able to find time to, to write because their load is so high. I think what I do from the outside, what I do sort of envy at times is, is the, the occasion to keep talking about writing every day. That's what I, that's what I, as someone who lives on the outside, that's what I envy from that world is that you, you have to continue to, to, to read and teach and think about these, about these books for the sake of your students every day. Whereas um, in my world where I'm on the outside and I don't have a classroom to go to every day, I have to find an occasion to, to stay in the game in that way. You know what I mean? And to stay, keep my mind in those conversations that are happening in literature and i definitely feel like at times i'm i'm on the outside of it you know and as of lately i guess but no i don't think i don't think it hinders their writing a lot of times i mean i mean sometimes the depending on what in university you're at they demand that you keep writing so it's part of your you know reason for getting paid or 
getting promoted is having to create more and stuff, you know, and, and it's, it's much harder out here <laughs> when you're, when you're having to make a living other ways, you know, I think, but, and yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe underlying my question is thinking about poetry as perspective from different places in life. And if a lot of our poets mm-hmm. all exist in the same space, are we going to get kind of a univocal picture of the world? I, I, I knew this guy that <laughs> did, his, did his MFA in Iowa. And then mm-hmm. after that, went to work for LA Sewage. And yeah. he said it's the best inspiration he has <laughs> to write poetry. So I guess the, the underlying the question is just really, you know, is there a danger that so many poets all exist in one kind of work domain? Yeah, no, I think I, I, I feel that mostly from, I feel that mostly from reading young writers who are in MFAs, MFA programs and stuff, you know, like where you, you can read that this person is technically proficient. You know what I mean? This person is, has studied everything that they're supposed to study and they've, and they've been taught how to do this thing very well. And then it's up to them to kind of take it to the next level. And, you know, cause I don't know how many MFAs graduate every year. It's, I imagine it's in the hundreds and they're trained at some of the best schools by some of the best writers and teachers around. But then, you know, the books that we pay attention to or people that pick up, you know, it's, it's such a smaller margin, you know what I mean? It's, and a lot of, you know, it's, maybe 10 or 15 books that come out a year, if that, that really sort of, you know, grab the attention of, of everyone. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's really, it's kind of the, I love that people are, and still think it's, it's viable to, to spend two years or it's, it's important to them to spend two years studying poetry at that level, even if they don't make it their life, you know, the rest of their life, maybe they, a lot of them end up in like marketing and stuff. But in my mind, I'm like, that makes you a better human being that you spend two years, you know, being a poet. But yeah, it does. It does sort of some of the, yeah, some of the best. I remember listening to, oh man, it was this poet. She was, they were talking about, they had a similar sort of question about like, you know, does, is poetry dead or does MFA signal the death of poetry? And so, and you're right that there are, there's poetry that's happening outside of academia, outside of the university. That's also very important. It's, it's, you know, it's happening in high schools, it's happening in juvenile detention centers, it's happening in prisons, it's happening at the border in detention centers. Like it's happening in places where you always find poetry in these places where people are trying to save their life, you know, and they're trying to in some way or another and and that's where the i think poetry is kind of the most important or the most is exercising all of its powers you know is when there's this great need and desire to to just get out or to or to be seen or to be heard to make sure that your experience is is there and and yeah i think i think i don't know those are the places where it's most the most exciting to me anyway yeah, where it's an audience of yourself, you know, where it's a, it's kind of like Job's laments, you know, where it's like you're responding to life, you know, in the present moment. Yeah, to, to which I think is which I think is what answers the big question a lot about, you know, why Fresno. You know, I mean, even you know, lots of the poets that that are recognized all over the country that live here, they do teach in City College and Fresno State and other places. 
but there's still this sense, even though, you know, it's not Iowa, it's not NYU, it's not Columbia, it's not any of these other places, but there's still this, this sense of like sort of desolation and, and isolation and, and sort of this need to, to this pressure to, to like, you know, scream at the sun, you know what I mean? That's that you, that you feel while being here in Fresno and, and that it's, it, we're always trying to, people are always trying to come up with an answer for that, that why Fresno, why, why do so many writers come from here? And, and maybe that's at least a portion of that answer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to transition to my favorite category, which is called overrated versus underrated. I'll throw a bunch <laughs> of places, ideas, songs, just really anything at you. You just tell me you think, whether you think they're over or underrated and why. So We'll start with music. So the album Beats, Rhymes, and Life, over or underrated? I think it's properly rated. I think it's, it's understood as one of the greatest foundational things. And I, I don't know how much more you can, <laughs> yeah. you can rate it. You can rate it any higher than what it's already been rated as one of the greatest ever. So yeah, uh, it's hard to find an underrated or overrated De La Soul album just because they're all kind of uniquely magnificent so yeah. I was trying to find the one that was maybe an edge case but maybe it isn't an edge case yeah I mean it's like one of those weird sort of yeah like it's like oh you've, you've been properly rated the greatest yeah, <laughs> fair enough. you've fair been enough. properly rated immaculate like you know like <laughs> I couldn't have had a better answer all right next one Shakespeare's sonnets would they be as revered if they weren't written by Shakespeare are they over or underrated it's Tough call. In it's like I feel like there's two sides of me. There's me, the like you know the sort of classically trained, trained literature person who's like, you know, we have to respect those. Not have to, but at, given what's there, there's there's something to be found there. And then the kind of you know the the other part of me is like, well, there's plenty of other sonnets that have been that have been written by you know, Patricia Smith or, you know, John Murillo that are even better and more worth your time. You know what I mean? And that should be read as well, you know? And so, yeah, maybe I'm just going to go with overrated, overrated. Great. I love a controversial answer. All right. Next one. <laughs> the album, The Renaissance by Q-Tip. You know, I don't, I don't know that album well enough to make the call. Is uh, Q-Tip over underrated in, in the world of hip hop? I think he's underrated because I think if you ask the question today, I would say underrated, you know, because, I, I, you know, as a, as a beats beat man, a crate diver, as a sort of, I, I would really, I don't know. I haven't listened personally listened to an interview that went really hard into, you know, him finding his music, you know, him finding his, his snares, his, you know, his bass lines and stuff and and really constructing the beat because that whole that whole process of you know be it him or dilla or anyone else who 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 makes beats finds beats i should say was super instructive to me in understanding how a poem is constructed you know and because you're sampling you're sampling you know so many when we were studying like t.s Eliot in my in undergrad i was like this guy is like sampling from all this education that he got very expensive education that he got and he's sampling from it and putting it in his poems i was like this is this is what q-tip does you know 
this is what you know he literally crate dives and finds these little bits from history and hides them in his poems and then you you get if you're really interested or hides them in his, in his beats i should say in his beats and then you go and if you're really interested you can be like well where did that come from and then you you might find this like crazy you know genre of music from you know the 60s or the 70s or something something that you didn't expect a hip-hop artist to really care about and it's like these little breadcrumbs you know and i love that i love that so much yeah i had a friend in college that i, I forget who'd sampled him but became really obsessed with bill evans the jazz pianist oh, yeah. because yeah. of his because of the samples and would just sit in the living room and play nardis all day all right next one me and ed's pizza over underrated me and ed's oh that's that's too hard for me because man because that's like that's a heart that's like a heart food not I can I can rate Bianeds objectively fine, because my second most searched after delis is pizza places. But I think Bianeds holds up. I think it's you know objectively really good. But the thing is, is when I was a kid, we would get that so often. Like when we would call, they already knew our order. You know what I mean? Like you know it would. You know every my aunt used to you know because in the summertime, especially all my cousins were all were at my grandma's house. And, and my aunt Sissy would call every Friday and get a family size, which I think they got rid of the family size, but they have the, we would just get a family size pepperoni and olive every Friday. And so it, it's like a sort of memory trans, transport when I eat me and Ed's, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's sort of the, the standard. There are better pizzas, but it's, it's definitely, I know I'm in the Valley if you can get me and Ed's, you know, cause it's like between here and. I think they have one weirdly enough in Hayward. That's as far north I've, I've, I've found one. And then as far low as Bakersfield, but nothing outside of that, you know? And uh, so it's, it's definitely the home team pizza, you know? For sure. All right. Next one. American Dirt, the book, over underrated. Overrated. Overrated. Yeah. And I, I feel like many smarter people than me have talked about it, but yeah, I definitely overrated. Yeah. It's, plenty, it's, plenty of better immigrant stories told by those who actually did it that have come out. I'm thinking of my friend Javier Samora, read his book, Don't Read American Dirt. Yeah. And I think it definitely broached some interesting conversations about representation and voice, which yeah. I think, so I think that's honestly the most fruitful thing about the book is the conversations that started, not the book right. itself. Um, yeah. Which... It, yeah. And it got a lot of people to think, oh, you know, you can, if you're these, it kind of, it got a lot of, like, it got me to realize how much how big these deals are for, for first time writers. I was like, you mean they're giving out six figures to first time writers straight out of MFA with, you know, and I'm like, and I'm looking at the people that I read the most, you know, some of those, some of the writers that were in that conversation, some of the, who I looked at as some of the biggest writers, most influential, we're not getting, have never gotten six figure deals in their, in their, in their careers. And they're, and they've written a dozen books and they're taught, regularly at every university that you could imagine in high school and middle school that you could imagine. And they're not getting six figure deals out of the door. You know what I mean? And, and so if anything, that, that realization, I think got a lot of writers that are sort of, that were shifting over into fiction or nonfiction to be like, Hey, I need it. If it's not, if, if they're giving that, that much that they need to give writers that are coming from this, this side of the, of the tracks that, that those kind of deals. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next one. The album Donuts, over underrated. Underrated. Even still, huh? 
Make even case. Still, yeah, <laughs> I would say that one's underrated because I don't think it's listened to as often or as much. Except that those, I guess they have those like sort of monthly or, or annual sort of get togethers. But yeah, I think I'm going to stick with under, underrated on that one. Okay. Old Town Clovis. Oh, shit. <laughs> man i'll say the, the the way that it is now it's definitely overrated and the only the old town clovis that doesn't have henry's is overrated i don't know if you ever went to henry's i've never been to henry's what's henry's yeah henry's was it was this you know besides bobby uh, bobby's and salsas are are brown-owned institutions but but before that there was this bar called henry's which is now the the fifth or or fifth avenue or something like that and it was a Mexican-owned bar. So my grandparents were born there in Old Town Clovis, and and my mom still lives in on the corner where my grandma was born. In 19, she, my grandma was born there in 1926, but she, my family lived there before there before then. And uh, but there was this bar there that everybody's uncle, tío, tía, grandma, grandpa, everybody went to get drunk, and <laughs> it was kind of the when Clovis was much more evenly Mexican, you know, for example, when my grandparents were, were young up until about the sixties, Clovis was only about 2,500 people and half of them were, were Mexican, you know? And so there was this bar there, Henry's and yeah, everybody's, everybody's grandpa, everybody's, if you turned 21, you went there and like, we went there with your mom and your dad and your uncles and everybody, like, it was like the hometown institution for the Brown people that lived in Clovis. If you went to a funeral at the Catholic church across from my grandma's house, after the funeral, you went to Henry's, you know, if you broke up with your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, whatever, you went to Henry's. And for a long time, the manager was George Dominguez, who is, was the guitarist for the band, The Midnighters. And, and he just happened to be the manager of this bar in Old Town Clovis. And he had this big binder that had all these clippings from when the band was was in their heyday in the sixties. And uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a place. It was quite a place. It's gone now. Fortunately, they actually not too long ago, it was during the pandemic. It finally, finally went, went under and and was now something else, but I got lots of stories, family stories from old town Clovis, mainly there Henry's and, and the 500 club that's in old town. But I, I have a lot of friends that, that, that from out of town that when they look up Airbnbs, the ones that they end up at are in Clovis and they're like, Oh man, I heard it's, it's terrible. I heard it's racist. I'm like, well, <laughs> I can't say it isn't. They're like, yeah, someone said it used to be a sundown town. I said, well, yeah, yeah, I was. And, and it's, it's everything that, that everyone says about it. It is very white and, and, and it is at times uncomfortable to be there as a non-white person. And, but that's what the city has invested in, honestly, is as invested in whiteness and, and, and that's, it's, one of its major exports, you know, that's what gets people to move there. Yeah. 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 I am not in old town Clovis a lot. I somehow get roped into watching pole vaulting in in the late. Oh yeah. But beside that. Oh man. What a flashback. What a flashback. Oh my gosh. I used to go there with my grandpa, you know, he would be like, Hey, come on. You know, if you're going to be down this weekend, you know, the pole vaulting's coming, you know, it's this, <laughs> and you know, he used to love, you know, we, we, well, when he was, could ride his bike, we would ride, ride our bikes from my mom or he, he lived maybe three, four blocks from, from where the pole vaulting was happening. So at the center of town and yeah, we used to go watch, watch the guys and gals like, you know, 
do the thing at night. Fly um, through the air. Yeah. Yeah. That was um, fun times. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought about that in a really long time. <laughs> it's still going on every yeah. year, apparently. All right. Next one. The restaurant Quesadilla Gorilla. Shoot. I did a reading there once with my friend Juan Luis Guzman and it's cool. I mean, it's, it's a quesadilla. I don't know how, I mean, they don't really get really too exciting. I'm really, it, uh, it's a, it's a quesadilla, man. It's, it's, it's fine. It's properly rated. Next one, the book living up the street by Gary Soto. It's Underrated in the sense that, like, I hope it continues to be read, you know. Gary's one of those, you know, strange, unique in the history of Fresno and in Chicano literature because growing up here, I've read him at every stage. Like, once I learned how to read, I was reading Gary Soto, you know. I was reading Chato's Kitchen. I was reading Baseball in April, Boys at Work, Pool Party, all through elementary school. In fact, um, speaking of Clovis, I was, I was at my kindergarten, got Gary Soto banned from because uh, Chato's Kitchen, uh, I don't know if you've read it, but there's there's a cat, there's two cats that hatched this plan to to eat the mice that just moved in next door. And so the whole book is them trying to prepare this dinner, What? but they don't, they're going to eat the mice, you know, and, but they're these kind of down sort of old school Chicano type cats, cool cats. And one of them is wearing a, a bandana, red bandana. So the, on that grounds, the librarian and others, you know, were up in arms and and, wanted, and got Chato's Kitchen banned from the library because they said it was gang related. These, these cats were wearing red rags, bulldog rags, but they're cats though. So I don't know if they could <laughs> technically join the gang. I don't know. I don't know how animal politics work in the gang culture but but yeah so that 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 was that but yeah and then in living up the street in high school and then reading his poetry in college you know yeah i i can't you know one crazy fact about gary soto you know he's his poem oranges in the i believe the entire country of ireland if you're going from middle school to high school you have to have memorized oranges (laughs) <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and that's, the, you know, the whole country, like, you know, and uh, I just think that's really cool that, you know, someone like someone from here, some people from, from are reading about, you know, this little, little brown kid, little brown boys experiences, you know, so I only say underrated in the sense that I hope that it continues to be read, you know, I hope that his, his work continues to be read. Yeah, um, I think with someone as prolific as him, you know, it, you kind of start to underappreciate someone because they just produce so much, you know what I mean? And he's amazing because you can read them at every stage of life, just like what you described. Like some authors are just for certain stages, you know, you're not going to read War and Peace when you're 10, but you're going to read Gary Soto from like, you know, childhood to adulthood. And you can start with YA or young adult and you could get to poetry and then you can get to his memoirs. I mean, there's just so much so yeah. much there such like such my cousins my cousins were in his movie so they made a movie of pool party where i think juan felipe is credited as the screenwriter but it's an adaptation of a pool party and and my cousins hondro and gabe showed up when they did this call for extras and so i remember as a kid putting in the vhs tape us watching the whole movie and at the end when there's the big pool party they're like they're, they're pressing pause and being like, "There's Hondro," or "Oh, there's Gabe." Like he's in the back, like doing a flip <laughs> into the pool. 
you know, like, and it was such a big, big deal that they were in this movie, you know, and that's amazing. All right. Two more in this section. Let's see. Oh, actually here's two where you just get to choose one or the other yellow rain or afterland. That's hard, man. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You got to make a choice. Um, you can take one on with you to that deserted Island. Which one are you taking? I think I take I think I take Yellow Rain just because I've had I've had longer to sit with it. But yeah, I think I'll I'll take I'll take Yellow Rain. Fine. Okay, perfect. <laughs> All right, next one: Bootsy Collins or Thundercat? Whoa, man! <laughs> I gotta ask hard questions. It's boring if yeah, they're not hard questions. Uh, yeah, Bootsy Collins or Thundercat? Wow, jeez. I probably I think I take Bootsy. I think I take Bootsy because I side more with funk and i love thundercat i've seen i've seen parliament open for Thund- bootsy wasn't there but i saw parliament open for thundercat a couple of years ago at the hollywood bowl and yeah and and bootsy is is amazing and you know just created created so much music from his mu- so much music has been created from his music you know i mean yeah i take bootsy i take bootsy okay last last heart either or are you ready yeah okay flying lotus or mad lib Wow, geez. <laughs> you know, at that show, at that show, so it was Parliament, Thundercat, and Flying Lotus played, was the headline at that show. So yeah. I'm going to take Flying Lotus. Yeah. What is, what's your favorite Flying Lotus? What stage? We're talking early Lotus, his latest stuff where he gets kind of, I almost want to say kind of hallucinogenic. I think he was, right. he was talking about his psilocybin usage later on, I think. Yeah, I would probably take early Flying Lotus and also just, you know, I love that whole collective of sort of, you know, because it's like Flying Lotus, it's like Thundercat, it's Kendrick Lamar, it's like all this kind of like how this group is, is you know, you could even throw, I mean, it's just there's there's this little community. I love when there's like a community of creatives that kind of forms and they don't seem to fit, but they're like feeding off each other, you know. Yeah. Well, I I remember this is a funny story. So I was living in Altadena at the time and my roommate was working at the LA Times and he got Mad City a week before it was released. And so he brought this like clear disc home and yeah. we put it on our stereo in the living room. And I think we listened to it like two times all the way through yeah. just, just sitting on our couches. That is one of my most memorable music experiences for sure. Is no, I mean that, that, that album is, is, you know, I was listening to the album so much when I was putting together my book because I, I took most of my cues on how to build a book, like take individual poems and make them into a book from from albums, you know what I mean? Like albums like Mad Kid, Good Kid, Mad City. I think that one, you know, if you listen to, you know, Warren G, like Warren G's album uh, from 93, 92, very, very much the same kind of form where it's you're in Compton and you're and it's like a day in the life, you know? And so I, I, I really, really, really took cues from that. It was, you know, having a poem, a skit, poem, poem, skit, poem, skit, poem, poem, skit, you know, and, and that, that sense of so many of those albums, you, you sit on the floor in your, in your room and you turn them on and, and you listen straight through, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, there might be a radio hit in there, but it, it feels so much different when it follows this skit or it's about, and then another song comes on right after it becomes a part of the, the whole album, you know, and I really loved that. And yeah, it was such an education on how to, how to put together a, a book, you know? 
I feel like we could talk about music for a long time, but we do need to transition to wrapping oh. up with, with your new direction as the Poet Laureate of Fresno. You kind of mentioned this earlier, but I want to just kind of dig in for one moment a little bit more. From your perspective, what is the through line between the poets working in Fresno right now? In other words, is the connection with Fresno poets just their proximity or is there kind of like a thematic connection that really lines them all up together? You know, so we were just talking about Yellow Rain. You know, we could talk about what Lee's doing. We could talk about, you know, the history of Philip Levine and his role in the community. Like there's so, it seems like they're all, you know, they're very different poets, but there's something I feel like that connects them. What would you say that would be? What connects them? There's... You know, yeah, even with someone like, like Lee, I think there's, you know, you meet Lee and, you know, he's, he's a very sort of, he appears like sort of soft-spoken, kind, polite and things like that. But there's, there's a rage in Lee, you know what I mean? There's a rage in Lee, there's a rage in Anthony, there's a rage in Maidur, who also is very soft-spoken, but there's a rage in Maidur as well, you know? And, and it's, and I think that's what we've, what I find, and I mean, Sarah Borja's, you know, there's a, there's a, a rage when you meet her and there's a rage in the poems too, but, but there's, there's, yeah, this kind of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, our proximity to, to the fields, our proximity to just this wide expanse that's beyond us in any, in any direction and under five miles, we're in the middle of nowhere, middle of everywhere, middle of everything. And I think that's what kind of maybe, maybe I, I've, and, and every day, I, if I try to answer this question, I'll have a different answer. But, but I think lately, I think it's this kind of righteous indignation, this 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 rage, you know, this you know, even someone like like Anthony, who's pulling at least in his first books, pulling from historical documents about you know lynchings and writing about his grandfather and all these different things there's a, there's anger. There's like this anger, you know, and uh, I know exactly what you're talking about because the first time I talked to Anthony on the phone, I was kind of, I just finished borderline apocrypha. And so I kind of had a, like an image kind of like his voice in my mind. And he has the softest, gentlest voice. Yeah. And I just wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, you know, I wasn't yeah. expecting like, for sure. I, I know what you're describing with, with Sarah, but Anthony kind of threw me, but I, I think what you're, yeah. Like there's this, like, almost like this flat, kind of like calm demeanor on top, but like almost like the the land underneath us where the aquifers are being pulled out. Right. It's kind of like that metaphor that you're describing where there's just, just like this kind of violence sitting there, you know? Yeah. And it's just flat on top, but that violence. Maybe yeah. rage is the right term. I don't know if violence is the right term, but I, I hear what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. That's good to think about it as like this aquifer. Yeah, because yeah, there's 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 just a lot of yeah, it's it's an aquifer of rage, you know, that's like that's right below the surface on some of the and in the person and I think in the poetry, you know, because there's just a lot you have to put up with in, in this area, you know, like that you that you have to bite your tongue so often, you know, bite your lips so often and 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 just take what's coming, you know, be it be it the harsh weather, be it the just, you know, being broke, like, you know, your your car overheating, your tire bursting on the freeway, anything, these like things, small things that like ignite 
this like rage, you know, or, or like, you know, power getting turned off or somebody getting a bad, you know, getting a bad autopsy on something or not autopsy, excuse me, you know, getting a, finding out they have cancer or something like that, or biopsy that comes out back bad or, or, you know, these things that in this place are, are, are sort of common and you, and you have to sort of keep going somehow, but it doesn't mean that that anger doesn't, that it goes somewhere. It just kind of, kind of gets, gets seeps through the surface down into the aquifer. I really like that as, as an idea that's down in the, down in the aquifer, you know, and, and, and yeah, and there's a lot to be angry about, you know, and, and I, yeah, the writers that were mentioning, you know, they, they, they're very adept at pulling from it, you know, and it's either, I, I'm thinking of someone like Luis Marcelinas, where his, I think, comes out less with rage and more with this melancholy, you know, and Andres Montoya is kind of a mix of the two. I think he comes out with, you know, this melancholy, also this rage and it's all of its beauty. I think, I think, I think the, that the, that the rage is in favor of beauty. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just wanting to, to make something beautiful, you know, this, you know, and being like Andres, you know, there's this line in, in one of his poems. It's like, you know, I pray for, for angels with flamethrowers, you know, to protect you, you know what I mean? And it's, it's in a place like this, I feel like you, you have to be willing to be that, you have to be fueled by that anger sometimes in order to, to get the words out, you know? And uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think the sun's so bright, you can't hide your pockmarks or your scars, right? Like, right. It's, it's just all there just on surface. Let's, to kind of wrap up before I ask about book recommendations, now do you mind reading your poem that you wrote? So you're our new Fresno Poet Laureate. I've had one other Fresno Poet Laureate, Lee, on the show, but you're the second. And I loved your poem, and I read it a few times, and I want to hear you read it, because I, I know that voice and intonation also ascribes meaning. And then I have a, a one question about it. Okay. So it's called, excuse me, it's called Fresno is, Fresno is, Fresno is a leaky El Camino with rust in the bed that doesn't need much to get running. It's growing roots as we speak in a cracked oil spotted driveway and it's sprouted long spined arms of bougainvillea and the fuel door is bursting with clover. When it blooms, when its blooms pop that near neon pink, that's when the engine will turn over and it can cruise real slow down King's, King Cesar Chavez Boulevard. I can hear it now. Somebody steal blasting from his custom three-wheel bike. He throws up his shades and whistles as the plant-based biofuel ramfla turns, he turns heads down the road. Leaf limbs scraping as it leans into a three-wheeled U-turn. Fresno is... A holy well under a mini mall on McKinley and First that becomes the magical pho sold at each of the five restaurants there. Fresno is the man digging at the bottom of the well, filling another bucket with dirt, wondering if the next swing on the pick will splash mud in his face. The mud is a dream. Fresno is a dream, whispered about from Saigon to Ayoquesco, and it's hidden under several packed feet of hard pan. Fresno is the hard pan. Fresno is the water, the man, the shovel, the hole, the bucket, the darkness, the light. Fresno is 
an Oella living off Social Security who bails you out after your third DUI. Fresno used to dance on the west side at the Palomar at the Rainbow, drank too much, and punched her sister-in-law at the VFW, then died with an unpaid credit card from Montgomery Ward. Every felled fruit tree is Fresno's Oella being cremated in a sacred funeral pyre, a memory rendered into ash, its namesake, Fresno, un Fresno. Fresno is the elder fig trees that bow their heads into furrowed soil before they're piled, burned, and replaced with almonds. Fresno is whitewashed trunks. It's the fire. The smoke is so thick it blurs the mountains and paints new shades of red into the horizon. Mokel stream endlessly from our noses like tears as we cry real tears, waving goodbye from a passing Amtrak train full of recently released cholos with her name tattooed on their faces. Thank you for reading that. One of the things I've latched on to many things in the poem. One of the things was the image of these dying elder fig trees that are piled, burned, and replaced with almonds. And I took that to mean prophets over people. I took that to mean the land being sacrificed, the sweetness that was this town being replaced by production. What what was going through your mind when that image of fig trees falling and burning came to mind? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's I as because I lived in the Bay and I lived in LA or mostly when I lived in the Bay and I was in college and stuff, I, I used to take the train. Oh, I still take the train quite a bit. And when you're on the train, you can you can either going south or north, you see all the sort of uplifted figs or you know, who knows, any number of, of fruit tree sort of picked up and laid over, picked up and laid over, and there's these finely laid rows of all these pulled trees, you know, and they, they're almost, I mean, they're almost beautiful in the sense that, you know, the way that they're all laid in, in these long lines together. And then, you know, and then you go a few miles and then there's a pile, you know, that's, that's smoldering, you know, and, and yeah, I, I think you're, you're right to think of, you know, this kind of profit motive that, that happens. You know, almonds are the most, the highest yielding as far as money, a crop that, that a farmer can put out, I think, right now, and also take the most water. You know, I think it's like some crazy number, like 70 or 80% of the almonds of the world come from the valley, you know, and it's also what's sucking up all our water, you know, and it's also why, you know, we have these re crazy recurring droughts and, and that people I have a friend who I went to college with who his job is to okay deeper drilling of wells he's part of a water conservation um, some kind of initiative or something and uh, he tells me all the time you know that fresno madera are it's drying up he's like you know his he lives in bakersfield but all his calls are in madera and fresno out in the ranch part of fresno and he's like there's there's no water underneath us he's like they're having to dr drill you know much much deeper than they've ever had to drill to find it and he's like, and all my calls every day are for people, you know, who have to, they're just pushing the straw further and further down, looking for, looking for water. And, and yeah, and, and Fresno is one of those places where, at least having been writing about it for the last 15 years or so, it's, you know, we, and the writers that I know, you know, we, we write about Fresno with like as much love and tenderness as we can, but, but also in telling the truth, you know, we still have to, that same love and tenderness means you have to tell the truth. 
So there's a lot about Fresno that that hurts, you know, and it's sad, you know, and it and it's painful and 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 harmful to 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 people and to the earth. <laughs> and and so you can't really shy away from, from those things, you know, and and yeah, I sort of playfully say now nowadays it's like I've reached the age that every valley person reaches when you start looking out the window and you say stuff like that, like, oh, I remember when this used to be fig trees, or oh, I remember this used to be peaches, or oh, I remember this, you know, and now it's a mini mall or a, or a track home development or, or whatever, you know, I've officially reached that age where I can, <laughs> I can say that stuff, you know, and uh, yeah. So what do you aspire to, aspire to as the poet laureate of Fresno? What do, what do you hope to do with this particular platform? A, a lot of what I want to do is just champion Fresno writers, you know, and just do what I have been doing for the longest time is just talking agnosium about how cool Fresno writers are, you know, to other people who aren't from here and trying to get them to come here and visit and read and stop on their on their reading tours between LA and San Francisco, or if they're flying from New York or Chicago or Miami and like, and going to LA and San Francisco, I'm like, I'll get you a Greyhound ticket or an Amtrak ticket, like come up for, for a day and see what's going on up here, you know, and meet some of these writers. If it means like, you know, I've had readings in my backyard, I have a reading series. It's going to be an Arte, Arte Americas every, every art hop until October. And mostly just champion because I mean, it's, it's no, it's no, it's a known fact, you know, that Fresno is a, is a Mecca for poetry anywhere in the country, you know, in relation to anywhere in the country. I would bet money that if you go to any MFA program in any city, be it Portland, Chicago, Miami, Colorado, go to any New York, even, you know, your Rutgers, Columbia, NYU, if you go in any one of those, those, those schools and go to MFA classroom right now, I bet there's a Fresno poet on the syllabus. And that's any semester, any year, they're going to, you're going to find somebody from Fresno that's on the syllabus there. And I think on the one hand, in the poetry world, it's understood that something's happening special here in Fresno. But I think for me as the poet laureate right now, I think I want to make sure that people in Fresno know how, how, how beautiful and wonderful its poets are. And they're, they're alive. They're alive. You know what I mean? That's not some poet from a hundred years ago, this is, it is Anthony, it is Sarah, it is my Durr, it's Brent Saito, you know what I mean? It's, there's, there's people that are, you know, at least in poetry world considered young. Um, I don't know how, how they would feel or how I feel even is, I, I have a harder time, harder and harder times calling myself young, but that are, that there's poets right now that are doing amazing things. And, and, and Fresno, Fresno should know about it because because definitely every other place that that in the poetry world know already knows about it, you know, and uh, yeah. Last question: What are three books you'd recommend to listeners? Three books to listen to listeners. I mean, some of those some of those people I mentioned are easy easy ones to to mention. I'm looking at the bookcase now, but yeah, no, I, I think everyone should read Sarah's book for sure, and I believe she's working on a second book that's that's nearing coming out. I haven't read Anthony's second book yet, but his first book, man, I, I like got so mad when I read it because it was so good. Do you ever like listen to like 
listen to something or see something and you're like, dang, like you're so mad because you wish you had done something that that good. Mm-hmm. So when I read, read Borderland Apocrypha, I, I remember sitting down and like reading it and I, you know, and I was I was drinking a bit. And I remember going through the whole book. I read the whole book in one sitting and I remember I called him immediately and and was like, dude, like what what the explicative, explicative, explicative did you do here? Like this is this is so good, man. This is this is amazing. And I both like hate you and love you for doing it. You know what I mean? I definitely uh, when I interviewed Bryn, she was talking about when he was writing it and she remembers them like sitting on her floor in her office like moving papers around yeah almost like almost like they were quilting yeah the book you know it's amazing story yeah and yeah Bryn's also very very like just stunning on the page as well you know I would read anything anything by by Bryn and I know she's she's working on an anthology or maybe it already came out of sort of, I think it's something around the Japanese internment, or I, I could be could be wrong about that. Give us give us one non Fresno writer that's interesting to you working today that people should be, that people should follow. People should follow a non Fresno writer that people should follow. I'm trying to think of, I mean, there's some that people obviously know. I mean, I, I'm always. Talking about Jose Olivares, he's a he's a good friend, but his work really inspires me a lot. And he has he has a book that just that just came out, and it's it's translated by a friend of ours, David, from Mexico City. I just I love both of them because David he he translates a lot of Chicano Chicana Chicanx writers, and does so with like the most care I've ever seen. Like he, you know, he writes specifically in Mexico city, Spanish and, and somehow it's able that Mexico city, Spanish is able to capture a lot of the slang and, and things that, that we throw around. But yeah, anything by Jose Olivares is that's his sec, second book. He hasn't actually today he's, he's, he did a photography book. I can't remember. I think of the name of the photography book that just came out, but Jose Olivares is easily, easily found online and stuff. And his work is really exciting to me just because it, he, he pushes me to sort of to 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 be i think the further along i get in my like sort of poeting or study of poetry i i start to sound like we earlier you were talking about this kind of i start to sound more and more academic you know and just because you kind of get consumed by and sort of seduced by the language you know and because you start to learn and know better quote unquote and I, I really, I'm always trying to push up against that. And Jose has, you know, he, he captures a beauty in, in this kind of everyday language, you know, in English and in Spanish. And, and, and I'm always trying to sort of tag home base with that and stay close, you know, because I can get lost really easily in the others. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you? And can you share a little bit about the exhibit going on at Arte so people can come out and check it out? Next for me, I'll, you know, I'm going to be starting this fellowship at Stanford, you know, Stegner Fellowship. So I'll be there like sort of half time in Palo Alto. That'll be, so I'll be writing, hopefully finish writing the second book. And that starts in the fall. But the Arte, Arte Americas show was, it's an ex- exhibition of about 800 to 1,000 drawings by Jose Montoya, who's a poet from Fowler, who spent most of his life in, latter half of his life in Sacramento, but grew up here in the in the valley, he was 
family is from from Fowler and is a poet and and an artist and has had thousands of drawings but we're exhibiting maybe 800 of them or so and a lot of them are on napkins and cocktail napkins or those brown napkins from like a bathroom new yorkers would say like port authority napkins but uh, and also like denny's placemats and like things like that like there's hundreds and hundreds of these drawings and they're like bachucos bachucas navy people people from fowler and all kinds of stuff and yeah i built i built all the boxes all the display cases that are that are there's about over 50 of them half of them were from reclaimed fence wood that I planed and sanded and all kinds of stuff he treated. And, uh, and yeah, it was, you know, Jose is another one of those, you know, I would put Jose and both Jose's Olivares and, and Montoya sort of in my mind, they're, they're really close, close in my mind together. It was kind of a tribute, you know, I've spent a lifetime reading his work and sort of being close to his family and his son and his nephews and his uncle, his brother. And, and it was really nice. It felt really, really great to sort of pay tribute to him here in his, in this kind of homecoming way, you know, he's coming home, his art, his story is coming home to Fresno, coming home to the Valley. And yeah, the show will be open until November. You can go there. I think, I believe they're open Thursday through Sunday and every, Every first Thursday at Art Hop, we're going to do a reading there. So they'll be featuring a poet and we'll have an open mic every Art Hop at Arte. So the first of which is Sarah in June. The second of which will be Caribbean Fragosa, then Vicky Bertiz from LA, and then Lee, which will celebrate also the 15th anniversary of In the Grove, which was a, a journal that Lee used to be the editor of. And they did a sort of a big landmark reading there at Arte 15 years ago, where Phil Levine also read. And and then in October, Jose Olivares will be will be here in Fresno. Yeah. That's very exciting. Thanks for having this conversation with me. It was it's a great conversation and one of those ones where I feel like it could go on for a long time if we allowed it. So <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.